Welcome to the Standing Up to Pots podcast, otherwise known as the Potscast. This podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering the community about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. This invisible illness impacts millions and we are committed to explaining the basics, raising awareness, exploring the research, and empowering patients to not only survive, but thrive. This is the Standing Up to POTS podcast. Hello, fellow POTS patients and nice people who care about POTS patients. I'm Jill Brooke, and today we are going to discuss a common comorbidity with POTS, and that is hypermobility disorders. If you are very flexible or bendy, this may apply to you. If you are sitting in the splits right now because that's actually comfortable, this might apply to you. Our guest today is the wonderful Dr. Linda Bluestein, who is a top specialist in hypermobility disorders. She has been practicing medicine for over 20 years and has helped countless people restore function and improve their quality of life. As a former ballet dancer and instructor, she has a special interest in treating dancers and other artistic athletes who are at increased risk of hypermobility disorders. She received her medical degree from University of California, Los Angeles School of Medicine, followed by her residency at the Mayo Graduate School of Medicine, and she is board certified by the American Board of Anesthesiology. As an integrative medicine physician with certification in performing arts medicine, Dr. Bluestein takes a unique approach to the evaluation and treatment of patients with hypermobility helping them to have less pain, yay, and be more accurately diagnosed, big yay. Dr. Bluestein is an international speaker on the forefront of research on pain, hypermobility, and dance medicine. She offers individual telemedicine visits, workshops, and lectures for groups. Dr. Bluestein also has a podcast for people with hypermobility called the Bendy Bodies Podcast, She also serves on the committees or boards of numerous organizations such as the Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome Research Foundation, the International Consortium on Ehlers-Danlos Syndromes and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders, and many more. I could go on, but we actually want to hear from Dr. Bluestein. So Dr. Bluestein, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for the extremely kind introduction. Well, I am a big fan because you do so much to find every possible solution for people like me. But maybe we could start with the real basics. And do you mind just telling us what is a hypermobility disorder? Absolutely. So hypermobility, just that single word without the word disorder, just refers to that a person has at least one joint that has greater than average range of motion. And if we say hypermobility disorder, or disorders, then usually we're using that term to mean that they have symptoms that are likely related to the fact that they are bendy or hypermobile in at least one joint. So oftentimes with POTS, we hear about hypermobility syndrome disorders and or hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. What are those and what's the difference? So underneath the umbrella of hypermobility disorders are literally hundreds of different conditions. Amongst those conditions are a group of conditions that are called hereditary disorders of connective tissue. And within the grouping of hereditary disorders of connective tissue, which as you can imagine, these are genetic disorders. Within those, the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes are the most common. 
And as of recent findings, we now have identified 14 different types of Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, and the hypermobile type is the most common type. So back in 2017, when they did the last reclassification for the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes and related disorders, they made the criteria for the hypermobile EDS type, they made it much more strict. And at that time, they developed the term hypermobility spectrum disorders as a basket, if you will, for people who do not meet the criteria for hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but appear to have a hypermobility disorder that is not explained by one of the other potential conditions. And therefore, that's kind of like the default category, if you will. If people kind of, they seem to be meeting some other criteria for hypermobile EDS, but they don't quite meet all of the criteria. And there's no other condition to explain why they're hypermobile and why they're having those symptoms, then we say that they have hypermobility spectrum disorder. That's the terminology that we're using at this point in time. So it seems like a lot of POTS patients tend to have hypermobility, or I don't know, you know, what's the chicken and what's the egg, but is it known how much overlap is there? How many POTS patients tend to be hypermobile or vice versa? And then the big question, does anybody know why? Right. So this, there was a recent study that came out that showed a really, really high prevalence. The challenging thing is this was done looking at, I believe it was maybe three different clinics. And so you're looking at a selected group of people who are presenting to highly specialized clinics. So in terms of doing a more broad-based study, looking at to really get that information, I don't know that I feel comfortable quoting at this point in time that I feel like we have narrowed it down enough. Unfortunately, because of the fact that the terminology was changed in 2017, you know, it's only now that we're kind of getting more studies that are using the newer criteria because it takes time to develop a study and, and everything like that. And because the criteria have changed a few times over the past, you know, couple of decades, it takes a little bit of time to catch up in terms of the studies. You know, we don't really know why people get POTS. I mean, we know some of the reasons why some of the people get POTS. We know in some cases that it is related to post-viral, for example, you know, something related to the immune system, but, but that isn't always the case. And we do know that there are some conditions where it will actually cause a person to have symptoms that are related to POTS and potentially EDS or another hypermobility disorder and mast cell activation syndrome. For example, hereditary alpha-tryptosemia. And this is a condition where people have elevated tryptase in their blood and they have an extra copy or maybe even two extra copies of the alpha-tryptase uh, gene. So we know that that accounts though for a relatively small percentage of people that have, you know, we call it the trifecta or some people call it the evil triad. There's also talk about a pentad and, you know, because there's, there's a lot of things that seem to travel together, but part of the challenging thing in really dissecting all of this out is we have a bunch of factors that make it really challenging. One is there's a lot of overlapping features. So a lot of people who have these conditions have symptoms like headache, fatigue, dysmotility of their gut, meaning that their food travels more slowly through their intestines, food intolerances, sleep disorder, chronic pain, anxiety, functional impairments. So it can make it really hard to tease out what's coming from, from what. Um, so we need a lot more research in this area. This is super important. And if you take all of these things together, 
these conditions impact so many people that I really feel so strongly that we that we need to be prioritizing these conditions, especially now with post-COVID or long-haul COVID patients that definitely having a similar type picture with the fatigue and the orthostatic intolerance, meaning that they you know don't tolerate being in the upright position very well, tachycardia, lightheadedness, things like that. So, you know, it's been difficult to study these things so far, because as most people listening to this who either have POTS or they have a loved one who has POTS, they probably know that a lot of these symptoms, they're, they're kind of on the more vague side and they're subjective. And also oftentimes we don't have signs for, for these conditions and a sign versus a symptom. A sign is when you can see something visibly and it's an objective finding. So usually the lab work is normal. Usually the imaging is normal. And so it makes it harder to study some of these things. Yeah. So I think the one thing that patients talk about most with the joint hypermobility disorders is how painful they are. What makes them so painful? <laughs> yes, that is that is so, so true. And I know I stated it because somebody then sent me a meme with one of my own quotes from my podcast. <laughs> Hypermobile EDS and hypermobility spectrum disorders in, in particular are some of the absolute most painful conditions in, in medicine. And a lot of studies have backed up the fact that the hypermobile type of EDS, or what we are now calling anyway, the hypermobile type of EDS, is the most painful type. It's, it appears to be more painful in general than, than some of the other you know, less common types. And part of the challenge, I think, is that a lot of people who have EDS or Ehlers-Danlos syndromes or hypermobile EDS, is because they have more than one type of pain. So we know that there's nociceptive pain, which is pain from actual or potential tissue damage. We know that there's neuropathic pain, that's pain coming from within the nervous system. And there's centrally mediated pain, which is pain that comes from sensitization of the nervous system. So we have like upregulation of certain receptors, we have crosstalk in certain parts of the brain that normally dampen pain signals, that that crosstalk becomes less, and other parts of the brain that when they talk to each other, they amplify pain signals, and that part of the brain actually gets stronger. So you know, I think it's a combination of all of those factors that, that causes people to have so much pain. And also in just a practical matter of, of medicine is that our best window of sorting out what's wrong with someone is, you know, early on. By the time someone often is dealing with something for six months, 12 months, a year, I've seen patients that have had a given symptom for 30 years. It's really hard to get to the bottom of it at that point in time. But oftentimes with people that have EDS, they often do have a more sensitized nervous system. So the, the traditional type of imaging may come back normal. The average physician does not factor into consideration genomics. So the person could, from a genomics standpoint, and I don't mean genetics of having a genetic, like an extra copy of a gene. I mean the genomic pathways where you might be more prone to inflammation. Um, you might be more prone towards actually ha experiencing pain. Um, we all probably know people who have what we oftentimes call high pain tolerance, but it's, it's often because they have these single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs that make it so that they don't feel pain as much. And there was a case report a few years ago that came out about a woman in her 70s who had literally never felt pain in her entire life. 
And she also had never felt anxiety or depression. And it was so fascinating because they looked at her serum markers for different things, including endocannabinoids. And she had a really high level of one of the endocannabinoids. So it's like she's making her own, you know, cannabidiol, which is one of the components of, of cannabis. So um, it's just the more you dig deep into these things, the more that you realize that it really is complex. And the reason why we haven't found simple answers yet is because there probably aren't really simple answers there. But like you said at the very beginning, and I appreciated you saying that, my belief is that there's always something that that can be tried. Like pretty much for anybody, there's something that can be tried. Now, I understand that there's certain barriers for sure. There's people that can't afford to purchase the supplement or they can't afford the physical therapy or, or whatever that, that they might need. And that, of course, is a barrier that I think we really need to work on overcoming because these people are experiencing so much pain, disability, and are really um, you know, not able to work. And so I would love to see insurers providing many, many more of these interventions that could help people function better. Yeah. So I guess that's interesting to me. I, you know, I'm used to being in this demographic that gets maybe a little bit treated like we are a little overly dramatic or whatnot. So to hear from you, a physician who studies pain, that this actually is one of the most painful things actually is very validating. Another thing that you said that I just wanted to make sure I understood correctly was you kind of mentioned pain that does indicate damage to the body versus other kinds of pain that don't necessarily indicate damage to the body. Am I hearing that correctly? Right. It's such an important concept. So I'm glad that you're that you're bringing that up because even for me, so you know, I'm an anesthesiologist. I've had pain off and on since I was a teenager at times, you know, quite long lasting and, and more intense, but I literally had joint pain starting when I was in my teens and that greatly limited my ability to dance and, you know, impacted my career choices. And ultimately I was diagnosed with hypermobile EDS, but at that time I didn't understand what was going on in my own body. And it wasn't until I really started to learn about central sensitization and how pain does not equal damage that I really started to understand why some people can have a lot of pain, but their imaging doesn't look that abnormal. And other people can have a lot of damage in their bodies, but not have that much pain. And again, I think that's something that throws off, for example, a radiologist, because they're just looking at the images. And so they're looking at it from the standpoint of the quote unquote average patient, not incorporating, well, let's see if that person is genomically predisposed towards pain as, a, as compared to one who isn't, you know, basically what they're looking for is do these findings correlate with what the person has reported as their being their problem? So I think that genetics and genomics are such a recent thing that we're incorporating into, you know, into science. We've learned so much in the last few years. It's really helping us to understand why there's such differences among, amongst people. And if you look in families, chronic pain does have a tendency to run in families. And so it's, it's really fascinating. And other families, they're a lot less likely to have chronic pain. So in my opinion, it's a combination probably of being hypermobile. Maybe there's some nutritional factors that are involved. Maybe there's some plus or minus adverse childhood experiences different things that happen along the way, whether or not you have certain genomics that predispose you towards inflammation and experiencing pain, 
that will get you down this path where you look phenotypically like every other person that has hypermobile EDS, but we haven't been able to identify the quote unquote gene yet, probably because we're not a homogeneous enough population. Yeah. And when you talk about how multifactorial pain is, you make me want to go back to graduate school because that's so fascinating that your childhood events could affect how much your joints hurt 30 years later. Yes, tremendously. What happens is trauma affects the way the brain is wired. Probably a lot of us can relate to this. I know like for me, before I had pain on a more daily basis, if I had pain, but I was still, when I was still able to dance and everything, it didn't have the same meaning that it has now. Part of the challenge with pain is the meaning associated with it. So if you've never had pain that has interfered with your ability to do what you wanna do, if you haven't had horrible, tragic things happen in your life, you maybe are gonna interpret that pain very differently than if you've had tragic things happen, you've had pain that led to debilitating debilitating symptoms, led to you being so unable to do activities of daily life, you then became deconditioned, which I use that word very, very carefully and very intentionally because it drives me crazy when people talk about POTS and, oh, kind of, they're just deconditioned. And it's like, no, 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 no. And even in the EDS world, we have to be super, super careful about how we use that word. But what can happen is we can start having symptoms and then we start avoiding activity because we don't know if it's going to lead to the next you know, injury that's, that's going to put us out of doing what we want for six months. So we start to get what's called kinesiophobia, that's fear of movement. And then we start to get more deconditioned. And so that, that can affect us hormonally, that can affect our ability to stabilize our joints. And so there's also a lot of vicious cycles at play. So when it comes to chronic pain, and you know, we know that there's a huge link between hypermobility and anxiety. Um, this has been studied over and over and over again. It's, it's um, been very well demonstrated. So anxiety, we know exacerbates pain. There's no doubt about it. And pain exacerbates anxiety. So it becomes a vicious cycle. Pain increases anxiety, anxiety increases pain, and so on and so on and so on. So it, that's probably also another really um, important factor that we need to be thinking about. Oh my gosh, this is so interesting. And I'm so happy that we have you on our team understanding all this. This is great. I mean, it's horrible, but it's great that... You know, I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I love all of the different angles that you use to come at pain. And so maybe we can start in. What can be done for somebody with chronic pain from hypermobility? These are things that people can do on their own. Uh, I was on call one night at the hospital. I had already been practicing, obviously, since we said I was practicing for over 20 years. I'd already been practicing for a long time at this point. I had already had you know, multiple health conditions. I came across a YouTube video talking about central sensitization and and also then started coming across information about uh, pain catastrophizing. And I realized that I was doing that. I realized that I was a naturally born catastrophizer. Thank you very much, mom. <laughs> and, you know, catastrophization is something that I think it goes hand in hand with anxiety it's the belief that the worst is going to happen. And of course, again, this comes back to the whole trauma thing. If bad things have happened to you, you are more likely to think that the worst is going to happen than if bad things have not happened to you. If you had a super easy childhood, then you're probably less likely to, to feel that way. But 
once we understand the link between something like pain catastrophization and the degree of pain that we feel and the ability to function, the good thing is that we can change our thoughts. And it takes time and it takes practice, but a super exciting thing is that we have really learned over the past, I don't know how many years exactly, but about neuroplasticity. We used to think that the brain stopped changing around age 25 or so, and now we know that the brain changes throughout our entire lifespan. And we can use that to our advantage, just like it can work to our disadvantage. We can use that to our advantage. We know that physical pain and emotional pain are processed very, very similarly. So we can change our thoughts and that can help us to change how we feel and we can challenge our beliefs. And some of you might go, oh, she's talking about CBT, but, but it really does work, especially if we you know, really practice it regularly. And now there's different apps that people can use. And again, if people understand it is not psychiatric, it's physiologic. Okay. I'm going to say that again. It is not psychiatric. It is physiologic. Okay. So what we think impacts how our body functions. They are one and the same. They are, we used to think, oh yeah, they're separate, but there's a connection. They are absolutely so intricately connected. What we think affects how we feel and vice versa. So we can choose to think differently and this can take time. And again, I know people have different types of, of barriers, but, but we can all work on that aspect on what we are doing between our ears and what we're thinking. And one of the biggest goals that I have with my life is to restore hope for people that feel hopeless because I know I've been there. I, I have felt so incredibly hopeless and basically figured out a lot of this on my own. I didn't have my own doctors to help me. I had to do my own research and figure out what was going to work for me. And so that's why I'm so passionate about what I do. Well, that's, you know, exciting. And when you were talking about how when you change your mind, you change your body, the place where I have seen, I almost want to use the word miracles, probably that is overstating, but almost, I swear. So I am a nutritionist and I work with a lot of mast cell patients who have amazingly severe reactions to so many things that they eat. And some of them have been to the point where they could not eat at all. There was no food left that didn't make them react. And so they turned to some of these programs like the dynamic neural retraining or the Gupta program or things where they're changing their brain. And oh my goodness, I'm just astounded at some of the big results people are able to get. So when you talk about it being able to change pain, I believe it because in this other area, I've seen such drastic improvements. And, and I have as well. I think that it's hard sometimes for people to understand how that can work, but I have had patients that have made, like you said, pretty much miraculous recoveries from being so, and I'm not saying this works for everyone, but I think it, if you are able to do it, um, and again, it doesn't always take the DNRS program, which you know I know um, has, I think, probably a number of different options, but I'm thinking of one patient in particular who literally this is pre-COVID, flew out to one of these centers. And fortunately, she had the support of her parents. So she was able to, quote unquote, train on the DNRS like she was an Olympic athlete. And she was incredibly dedicated, trained for hours a day. But she, when she came to me, she was on a feeding tube and she, she was 
intolerant of pretty much everything. And she sent me a video the other day of her dancing because I hadn't seen her as a patient for a little while. We'd worked together quite a bit. And then I hadn't seen her for a bit. And um, she said DNRS. That's really what she had attributed it to. That's great. Wow. So what else? What, uh, what other things do you see people get helped by doing? So I have an acronym that I use to um, help me remember. And it's, it's basically an iterative cycle that I, um, as I'm working with a patient, that I go through in order to make sure that we're approaching these conditions in a multifactorial way. Because anyone who has experienced persistent pain knows that it affects every aspect of your life. It affects your relationships and your job and you know your ability to be a parent and a partner and, and all of those things. So a lot of people talk about, you know, the uh, psychosocial aspects of pain. We need to remember it's biopsychosocial, but we need to remember all three of those. And the, the acronym that I use for my approach to treating pain is MENS PMMS. And that stands for, the first M stands for movement, because that's so incredibly important that we move well, and then we move more. We want to make sure that we're moving properly. And whenever possible, working with a physical therapist is is ideal, ideally a physical therapist who's knowledgeable about these conditions, or at least is willing to learn and or is very creative in the program that they that they will prescribe for you. The E is for education, which is obviously what we're doing right now. The N is for nutrition, and I cannot overstate how important nutrition is. It is a balance. I'm, I'm giving a talk tomorrow on nutrition, and I also am talking about disordered eating because I feel like with all of the nutrition advice that's out there, you can end up walking away going, I can't eat anything. So we need to be very careful that we, you know, take, take it all with a grain of salt, knowing that this is general information and not advice for one specific individual. But nutrition is super, super important. There are a few general things that are true for everyone. One of them being that sugar will increase inflammation and causes a lot of problems in the body. So that's something that we definitely want to avoid. Then the, um, the S, the first S stands for sleep. Sleep is crucially important. So I try to work on helping people improve their sleep. A huge percentage of my patients have problems with sleep. And as we know, people who have POTS can have disordered sleep. That's a super common problem that people have. People have mast cell activation syndrome, EDS, all of those things that can have poor sleep. And then, so that was the men's part. Okay. P, P stands for psychosocial. Want to make sure that people are plugged into a counselor, support groups, some place that they can, that they can go to get support because it may or may not be within their family where they're getting, going to be able to get that support. And then the next M stands for modalities. So it might be acupuncture, it might be you know ultrasound, it might be acupressure, the Feldenkrais technique, the Alexander technique. There's so many, those probably should go into movement rather than modalities, but there's so many different modalities that can be used. Something like TENS, again, if somebody realizes that I'm using this as part of the program. I'm not relying on this to get 100% better. Um, it helps a lot to have realistic expectations. So I also try to you know, advise people that expect to get 10% out of one thing, 10% out of another. If you have five things that give you 10% improvement, now you're at 50% improvement. And that's 
for most people that have been in pain for a long time, that's pretty significant. So the, the first M is for modalities. The second M is, or the third M, I should say, excuse me, is for medications. Um, and there's a number of different medications that I prescribe. And then the last letter, the S is for supplements. There are quite a few supplements that can be beneficial for people with chronic pain and particularly for people with EDS and or POTS and or MCAS. That's great. And, you know, obviously to anyone listening, that is so many things. And that's why we're going to direct you to Dr. Bluestein's podcast at the end of this and her website so that you can follow up on all of those things. And Dr. Bluestein, you had mentioned realistic expectations. How long should someone expect to have to work at this before they start to notice any difference? Is, is this maybe a lifelong pursuit or... Is it realistic to feel better by next week, next month, next year? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I do ask people when I'm doing part of the intake for new patients, I ask them, you know, what, what do they expect? When, when is a realistic time frame for you to expect improvement? Because I want to see what they say first. You know, like you said, if they say, if they say a week and they have very few problems or they maybe have a single straightforward thing that just happened, that's very different than if they have 30 problems and they've been ongoing for years, right? That makes a huge difference. So I would say to most people, not, not everyone that I see, because I see people at all different places in their journey. I would say for most people though, that I see that are on the, the more serious end, they've been having problems for a longer period of time. It's, it's a lifelong process. And I think it's important to realize that it's not necessarily linear. So to expect that, you know, you're going to have two steps forward, three steps back, or as, as one of my patients likes to quote a Japanese proverb, if I can get this right, that says, fall down seven times, get up eight. <laughs> so I think that, that that's an important way to, to think about it, that, you know, it's, it's trial and error because the other thing is our bodies are constantly changing. We're all getting older every day, of course. I don't think anyone has figured out how to do aging in reverse. So it's important to know that, you know, what works today is not necessarily what's, what's going to work five years from now. And of course, over time, we keep acquiring new information, um, you know, new studies come out, more details about various different things that can really make a difference for people. Part of why I, I really wanted to do what I'm, what I'm doing now is because I went to an anesthesia conference in uh, 2016, I think it was. And at that time I was, I was off work because I had had a, a surgery and I developed CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome. And I was sitting in this conference um, because I still wanted to learn as much as I could, even though I wasn't currently working. And I realized listening to the lecturers that I, as a patient, had this feeling that none of the healthcare professionals really cared that I was in pain. Yet when I was at this lecture, the, here was all these people that were doing research on pain. They were working so hard to come up with solutions for better pain management. And I thought that gives me a lot of hope. And I want other people to know that. And I want other people to have quicker access to the research and to this information so that they can have hope too. 
That's so wonderful. So when it comes to medications for pain, it feels like a really scary landscape. Like obviously there was the whole opioid disaster thing and controversy and some of the other pain medicines have, I think, side effects that scare many of us. Um, A lot of patients are curious about low-dose naltrexone, but that one seems to have less research than some of the others. Do you try to keep people away from pain medicines as long as possible? I guess as as a physician, is the whole pain medicine landscape as like scary to you as it is like to the patients? Do you feel like that's something that that patients shouldn't be so scared to turn to if they're in a lot of pain? So when you're talking about pain medicines right now in that last couple of sentences, are you referring to opioids specifically? You know, to be honest, I... Or just medications in general? Yeah, just medications in general. I'll, I'll break it down into opioids and, and then we can talk about the... And the non-opioids and we can talk about the non-opioids in a second. Opioids... People are people are smart to be afraid of opioids because they 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 cause so many problems and I do prescribe them in very very selected circumstances and there are some people that have EDS a lot of the people that I'm thinking of now that I have prescribed opioids for that have EDS a lot of them do also have POTS some people are basically in palliative care meaning that they are they're not in a hospice but they have like a terminal condition or they have a they have an extremely um, serious condition that that there's really no hope of it getting better. Prescribed now for sporadic use. I'm really not set up currently in the proper way to prescribe opioids, you know, chronic long-term opioids. I'm not set up properly to do that, but um, I do prescribe them for, for intermittent use. So say someone has a dislocation or a subluxation and, and they have a lot of pain, Oftentimes that's related to muscle spasm, by the way, not related to type of tissue trauma that a person might think it's related to. And a lot of times we have subluxations all the time and they're not painful. So it's it's one of those things where I feel like we should use the lowest dose for the shortest period of time. But I do think that people who feel psychologically better knowing that they have something on hand, I can totally relate to that. And I think that that's very reasonable so long as they understand this is for emergency use only. I have prescribed people like a small amount for emergency use only, and they've called back two days later, it's gone. Again, it's, it's it has to be a mutual trust type of situation, especially when it comes to prescribing opioids. And I know that this is a, we could talk for probably a couple hours just on this topic alone. So I, I will move away from this very soon because I know that there's also a group of patients that are probably listening to me now getting very angry because they're thinking that I'm not compassionate. I, I am. It is extremely challenging for those that where opioids are appropriate. It can be very hard for those patients to get opioids. And I feel terrible for those patients. I feel like we need to do a better way of sorting out who should get them and really benefit from them and who should be trying other things first. And we need to do a better job of offering those other things up more readily and making them more cost-effective and those kind of things. Okay, I'll move away from opioids. But I do want to say one last thing about opioids. One of the challenges with opioids is they do cause degranulation of mast cells. So specifically for the EDS, POTS, mast cell population, opioids can not only cause sensitization of the nervous system and increase that central sensitization. We all know that they cause side effects in physical dependence and tolerance, which again, I wish we had more time to get into that, but um, they, they also can exacerbate MCAS symptoms. 
So, so those are some of the problems with opioids. Of the non-opioid medications, there's a whole range of things that, that can be beneficial, but it has to be tailored to that specific person and things have to be prescribed in the right way. So I have hap- had this happen a lot where someone has said, oh, I tried gabapentin, not that I prescribe gabapentin that often, I think pregabalin is a better choice, but I've, I tried it and, and I'm allergic to it. And then I asked them what happened, it made me sleepy. And then I might even pull out the pictures, oh, show me what size pill you took. And their doctor prescribed right off the bat, 600 milligrams, three times a day or something. Of course, that's gonna make you sleepy and give you terrible brain fog. So it's really the devil's in the details. And I I think another super important thing that goes with the expectations is keeping an open mind. Patients who seem to do better are the ones that have a more open mind, they have the realistic expectations, and they are not only willing to do the hard work, but they have the support around them that they need in order to do the hard work. Because we all know that it takes money to have a roof over our heads. And so I know people have different, you know, kind of challenges in, in that regard, especially, you know, now as we're hopefully knock on wood coming out of the pandemic. But there's just so many different things to consider when it comes to medications. And there's so many things that can be helpful. And for me, when it comes to choosing what to prescribe, it's all about risk benefit. So the risk for something like opioids is very, very significant. The risk for something like low-dose naltrexone, very, very minor. So I am, even though, like you said, yes, there's not as much research about low-dose naltrexone yet, I personally, for my patients that I've treated with low-dose naltrexone, I've seen really good results and, and very, very few side effects. Are there some that can't tolerate it? Yes. Does it usually work to decrease the dose? Yes. Um, are there some that want to give it up after a short period of time? Yes. Um, I usually urge them to, to at least persist with it for six months. And sometimes we can go up to maybe a little bit higher dose. There's a lot of details in there that are important. When are you taking it? How are you taking it? But there's a lot of medications that can be beneficial. This is such great information. And I'm sure that everybody is saying that they want like 20 more hours of this, which you can actually provide to them because you have a podcast where you go really deep on so many of the subjects Um, that we're just really ever so lately touching on. Do you mind just telling people about your podcast and other resources and where they can find you? Sure. If people go to my website, which is hypermobilitymd.com, that is where they will find, you know, links to Bendy Bodies, which is the podcast and all of the other resources that I think are most important to know about. I wrote uh, two chapters for a book called Disjointed, Navigating the Diagnosis and Management of Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders. Very long title, but that that is the number one resource that I that I recommend to people. It is really comprehensive and there are I believe over 20 specialist chapters. I get no royalties whatsoever from sales of the book. All of us who wrote chapters in the book, um, you know, we all donated our time. So none of us are getting anything from sales of the book. It is now avail- available for you know delivery anywhere in the world, I believe. And it's also available as an ebook for those who prefer that format. My podcast, I host that with uh, Jennifer Milner. And I founded that about a year ago uh, because I wanted to deliver the types of information that I thought would be most beneficial for people. And I really love doing it because 
if I hear a podcast or I read something and I want to talk to that person, I say, well, this might make a great topic for the podcast, but it's a way of, you know, really bringing experts to people and it's free to the listener. Right. So it's, um, I, I love doing, I love doing the podcast. I think it's a lot of, a lot of fun. And I think it's a great way to, to deliver the information. Um, I think those are probably the most important resources. I will mention, though, I guess one other thing, I wrote an article with Dr. Pradeep Chopra, who is my mentor, and he and I wrote an article on anesthesia considerations for Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. And of course, we also talked about anesthesia considerations for POTS and for mast cell activation syndrome in that article. And um, there's a link to that also from my website on the media page. Fantastic. Dr. Bluestein, this is such a wealth of great information. I cannot thank you enough for taking this time with us today and for working on sharing such thorough approaches to managing chronic pain. We are very excited to have your voice out there spreading awareness. And I hope there are patients or parents listening to this right now where their pain is still very early on in any progression so that they might be able to help treat it early like you've suggested. So thank you a million and listeners, we hope this was helpful, but as always, remember this is not meant as medical advice. Consult your medical team about what's right for you because we're all so different. But thank you for listening. Remember that you're not alone and please join us again soon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, www.standinguptopots.org podcast. And I would add, if you have any ideas or topics you'd like to suggest, send them in. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots.